Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zair Yunus and today is a special episode in the sense that a couple of weeks ago we covered um, the US-China rivalry and where India fits in and how India is looking at, uh, you know, its own competition with China, what it's trying to do. And that was an amazing episode with Dr. Tanvi Madan. If you haven't heard that, I would highly recommend you also listen to that in relation to this conversation because today we're going to be talking about India's foreign policy, starting with the prime minister's visit to D.C. He then went to Egypt, um, what's going on there. And then at the end, we'll also touch on where India-Pakistan relations stand and where they could go in the near future. Uh, joining me today for this very special episode is Ashok Malik. He's a partner and chair of the New Delhi subsidiary for the Asia Group. Also a colleague of mine, Ashok has vast experience uh, looking at India's foreign policy, its economic and strategic posture in the region and beyond. Um, prior to joining the Asia Group, Ashok was serving as an advisor in the Ministry of External Affairs, working very closely uh, with Dr. Jay Shankar, who's the foreign minister of India. Um, and Ashok also happens to be a colleague of mine. So this will be an on-record discussion of many things we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Ashok, thank you so much uh, for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you, Uzair. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for thanks for inviting me and thanks for having me here. Let's start with the trip. Um, Narendra Modi comes to Washington. It's a state visit. Uh, he becomes one of the very few uh, leaders in history to have twice addressed a joint session of Congress uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, but that there was a lot of noise before and after uh, the trip itself. You know, bad bet on India. Is India ever going to be an ally of the United States? Will India is buying Russian oil. It's trying to like play both camps. Help us decipher the signal from the noise here. What was the significance of this trip? And what are some things people should be aware of moving forward? You know, I think this trip proved uh, more than uh, almost anything else that the commentary and the analysis of the India-US relationship is actually way behind the trajectory the two governments have put together for this bilateral relationship. Uh, I don't think in government they're seriously bothered about what is an ally and who is a partner and where alliances end and partnerships begin. Those semantics, those... Uh, 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 details which are really so 20th century in a time of such dynamism and uh, very, very different relationships. Uh, India is never going to be an ally, or not for the foreseeable future, uh, not going to be an ally in, in the sense that the US had allies in the 1950s or 60s. For one, India doesn't depend on the US for its uh, immediate military security. If if a country uh, attacks in India, if India runs into a, a, a warlike situation with China, which it has faced over the past two years, or with any other neighbor, uh, quite frankly, including Pakistan, it's not that US troops or the US uh, nuclear umbrella kicks in. Not at all. That's, that's not the relationship. So, uh, 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 the expectations of the two countries of that the two countries have of each other are very, very different. Uh, also, in terms of uh, uh, of security, which uh, is a key feature of this relationship, but not the only one. Uh, military security has long been, uh, I wouldn't say overshadowed, but been vastly complemented by concerns about technology and supply chains and how they fit into a broader national security architecture. And that is where uh, India and the US see each other as extremely valuable. That is where this visit 
uh, actually took the relationship much, much further. Uh, in normal, in the normal course, an Indian prime minister visiting the U.S. Uh, would try and take one of many boxes, uh, one people to people in the cultural relationship, uh, two, uh, a strategic and political alignment between the two governments and countries, three, defense or military deals of some nature, four, business partnerships, including investments from the U.S. to India, and in some cases from India to the U.S. because it is now decidedly a two-way street. Uh, and uh, fifth, of course, uh, technology, because uh, technology incubation is something the Indian community contributes to in a big way in the U.S. Uh, sharing technologies between two countries, co-producing these technologies, uh, whether it is uh, in advanced computing, whether it's in, in, in uh, the quantum sphere, whether it's in, in the digital sphere, whether it's in, in climate change related technology, in, in all of those, uh, the two countries can work together and are working together. This visit actually ticked all those boxes. Uh, it even had a, a it had a diaspora element. It had a uh, an address to the U.S. Congress. It had uh, a massive reception at the White House, uh, at the, at the lawns of the White House. Uh, so, in a sense, this visit was, was the grand slam. There's, there was almost no element that was missing. Uh, it is opposite that this visit was just so big. It is. And, Possibly the biggest visit any Indian prime minister has had to the to the U.S. in terms of uh, optics as well as outcomes. Uh, it is opposite. This has happened because uh, of two or three reasons. One, if you look at his record, uh, Narendra Modi is possibly the most bullish prime minister India's ever had uh, on the India-U.S. relationship. Uh, he's uh, he sold it domestically. He's taken it forward. Right from the time uh, he, his government brought into effect the foundational agreements that, that really pushed the defense relationship uh, to uh, going to America repeatedly, to inviting an American president to India's Republic Day celebrations. Uh, in every possible way, he's actually sold the relationship. Even with this visit, he's essentially tied India's economic and technological development with a deepening of his relationship with the United States. He's, he's, it's almost a one-to-one -one correlation that he's in effect achieved and, and messaged both in the US and in India. Uh, in terms of immediate outcomes, what, what this visit is, has done is that it's given very strong signal to business. At a time when uh, supply chains are, are being diversified, I'm not suggesting they're all being removed from China, but they are being decidedly being diversified into several uh, geographies or trusted geographies, if you will. Uh, they are being diversified for a number of reasons. One, because the old model of globalization, which led to a concentration of manufacturing supply lines in particular in, in, in China and in that region, has created a pushback uh, in, in many countries, including the US and India and many parts of the world. That's one reason. The second is what we saw with COVID uh, was that uh, the concentration of supply lines, again, in China, potentially could create bottlenecks, could create shortages of everything from masks to, to semiconductor chips across the world. Uh, sometimes because of actions by the Chinese government or by a particular government, sometimes because of just the, the nature of the outcome of, of the pandemic and the lockdown. Uh, and third, of course, there's been a, a trust breakdown between 
several democracies, including uh, the US and India for different reasons vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, this has led to concerns about what the Chinese are doing with key technologies, key emerging technologies uh, to which they have access. And this is creating a, some sort of a distinction in the minds of many countries, including the US and India, between trusted geographies or trusted countries and well, not so trusted countries. So in, in, in given this, businesses are clearly taking signals from from geopolitical uh, messaging that governments are sending out before taking investment decisions and uh, the messaging coming out of this trip is that the us and india want to work much more closely together so that messaging is being heard by companies not just in the us and in india but quite frankly, in third countries too, that uh, want to be on the right side of, of these geographies. Uh, we've already seen Micron uh, agreeing to invest in a, a semiconductor assembly and, and a packaging facility in, in, in near Ahmedabad, in Gujarat, in India. Uh, we've, uh, uh, we've seen decision, a decision taken by uh, Tesla to seriously explore manufacturing in India. Uh, other U.S. companies, particularly in the in the computing, uh, adv uh, advanced materials, and uh, uh, manufacturing space, uh, are also looking at at India much more carefully. They're not looking at just India; they're looking at other countries as well. But India is is a key part of their diversification story. Now, the biggest success story so far, of course, has been that of Apple, which is doubling down on India uh, and diversifying from its its current factories in in China. Uh, all of this this process will be given and has been given a, a great impetus by this visit. So that that's a great uh, overview, uh, and I have a couple of follow up questions. Let's start with the business side, right? A lot of interest. Um, you mentioned Apple, Tesla, Micron, others taking the lead, but then India is also not a super easy place to do business, right? Particularly in relation to bureaucracy and and some of the policies. Something that I you know, even on the Pakistan side of the conversation talk about is there's a difference between import substitution and export promotion, right? The policy framework for those two things is very different. Um, and at times we see bureaucracies in South Asia across the board go into this old import substitution lens. It's only for our market and will protect our market. As someone sitting in Delhi, what more would you like to see happen on the policy front to really take the signal and more aggressively convert it into a realizable opportunity on the India side, particularly on the manufacturing ecosystem perspective. You know, uh, Uzair, I'd like to, since this is a, a deeper conversation, I'd like to give a slightly longer answer. Uh, any country with a deep and large domestic market, the US, India, uh, any other such geography, is going to leverage its domestic market to legitimately ask for a greater participation in manufacturing, to ask for some, not all, but some of the, the global value chains being moved or being, being placed in, in, in its own geography. Uh, the earlier model of simply uh, outsourcing all manufacturing to wherever it was uh, the cheapest or the most convenient for a particular transnational corporation to do it. And just sitting back and, and believing that when there is a shortage, goods will miraculously turn up. 
and uh, that domestic society will automatically reorganize itself to to live with an economy that has very little manufacturing. Uh, that model hasn't quite worked. There's been uh, it's led to economic uh, discrepancies and shortfalls uh, and in times of crisis uh, or whether geopolitical crisis or or a pandemic. Uh, it's also led to a political pushback. So to some degree, uh, countries such as India and the US, very different countries, very different uh, economies. The US is many multiples of India's GDP. But both are looking at the domestic market and saying, look, you can't just have this for free. You have to give us something. So uh, uh, people being almost jealous of market access, that that's a reality today. Uh, second, there is a legitimate desire in India, it has been for some time, to push up manufacturing. This government says that it wants to push manufacturing from about 16% of uh, Three, three trillion dollar GDP today, a little over three trillion dollars today, to uh, uh, about twenty five percent of a much larger GDP in about ten years. Uh, it's it's a it's a tough ask, but it's a it's a legitimate aspiration. Uh, much of that, uh, the incremental growth will come from electronics and you know mobile phones, computer computers, consumer electronics and that space, because that is a space that is really growing. It will also come from defense manufacturing and its knockoffs and its you know, uh, collateral benefits. So those are areas India is looking at legitimately. It would also come from some niche, uh, not niche, but some categories uh, where India can easily scale up to become uh, a key global supplier. This could be toys, for instance, which is, again, the government is looking at very carefully. Textiles is another area which should be an Indian strength, but for a variety of reasons India lost out to countries such as Bangladesh, which actually were much cheaper uh, because India is not always a cheap economy. So uh, the push towards manufacturing, to, towards increasing the share of manufacturing in the GDP, in, in a much larger GDP, is legitimate and it's also fairly determined. Uh, it's been attempted earlier without success, but I have not seen any government uh, put in the sort of focus and energy into making it happen as this one has. Has it been successful entirely? No, but it's a work in progress, but decidedly there has been progress. Uh, second, we need to ask ourselves, why has India not been a manufacturing power all these years? One of the reasons has been that, quite frankly, we haven't done factor market reforms uh, in a way that uh, we should have. Uh, there are many reasons for this. It's, it's been politically difficult. People didn't attempt it. We can go into that history. And in some cases, you need to do it at the level of states rather than federally. Or uh, All of those, are, those, those points are well known and well taken. In a sense, what the production-linked incentive program, which, the, which this government launched a few years ago, has done, is it's, it's given uh, incentives to companies uh, which have had legitimate complaints about India's absence of factor market reforms and said, look, we recognize that this is an expensive place, sometimes expensive place to do with, to manufacture. Here is an incentive for you to kickstart your manufacturing in India. It was not an incentive forever. It will be phased out in some time, but it's it's cash and an incentive for you to, to get started. And uh, uh, quite frankly, the, the PLI scheme is generous. It's also flexible. 
you talk about bureaucracy being a problem. Yes, it is a problem. I'm not denying that. We, we both, your country, your original country, Pakistan, and my country, India, have inherited the same bureaucracy. I, I would add my adopted homeland, the United States, also has a crazy bureaucracy as well. well. The, 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 all of us can blame the British, I guess. Uh, so, but for for bureaucracy is nothing else. But uh, the the fact is, uh, the PLI scheme, as this government has, uh, has seen it, has been fairly flexible. It uh, the government has an individual civil servants and ministers have listened to feedback, have tweaked the policy for for different categories. So there is a two way process. Is it perfect? And is it is it is it that the government listens all the time? No, I'm not suggesting that. But there is a greater energy and a greater em emphasis on pushing up manufacturing and genuinely trying to help business uh, and, and international companies than ever before. Can it be improved? Of course it can. But the effort at the moment is, is markedly different from almost any such effort in the past few years, in the past few decades, I'd say, or since 1991 when we began uh, our economic reform program. Uh, I have not seen this sort of a determined effort to push manufacturing ever before in my lifetime. Yeah, no, it's it's been, it's been, and of course, Apple's entry and, and the interest from others is a testament to that those reforms and, and those incentives really channeling investment in the country. I want to switch to something else related to that trip um, and would love your thoughts on it, right? From my point of view, sitting in Washington, the prime minister comes, as you said, ticked all the boxes, big deals, technology transfer, all of that good stuff. Um, and then uh, 24 hours later, as he was going to Egypt, we saw in Russia, um, the Wagner group come within 200 kilometers of Moscow. And to me, that was a classic sort of like, if anything, the best signal ever, right, to domestic audiences in India that, hey, the bet is right. It's it's the prime minister's bullishness on the United States actually proving right, right after as he departs the United States. Um, and as you said, there's a commentariat that is sort of behind the curve in terms of where this relationship is going. But then when I look at the media discourse, the social media discourse, it kind of got hijacked away from outcomes towards the react and respond cycle related to questions asked by journalists or things of President Obama said, et cetera. Do you think that the discourse in, in India in particular missed that opportunity to really double down on where this relationship is going between the United States and India and sort of got occupied in the noisy, rancorous debate of non-issues, essentially, in terms of where this relationship stands? Look, again, let's step back and take a, a larger view of this. Uh, some of the tweets that we saw, including from ministers and MPs, were very, very avoidable. I'm not denying that. Uh, but let's look at a, a broader picture. Uh, as far as I know, there are about 25 million Twitter users in India. Yeah, I could be wrong. But it's fairly obvious that the bet on America uh, has a buy-in from a vast, vast majority of middle India, which is much greater than its, its Twitter constituency or its Twitter uh, population. Let's presume everyone on Twitter is against this relation, which is certainly not true. Even then, the, the number of the hundreds of millions of Indians who have a stake in the American relationship is far greater than, than 25 million, presuming all 25 million don't like the relationship. So let's not be distracted by the noise of Twitter. Uh, the relationship with America is uh, goes far beyond the Wagner group or what's happening in Ukraine or Russia 
quite honestly. It is part of a reimagining of India's place in the world going back to the 80s, I would say. And it's been it's been accelerated in the past 20 years since since the turn of the century. Uh, the post-Pokhran nuclear test uh, rapprochement was one uh, important milestone. Y2K was another important milestone. Uh, the, uh, the nuclear deal under Dr. Manmohan Singh was another milestone. And all, uh, of course, Mr. Modi's administration has had several such milestones leading to this visit, leading to the, to, to the, 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 the deal with, uh, uh, that will see US jet engine technology being, being moved to India, being transferred to India, and jet engines being manufactured for, for Indian-made fighter aircraft. Yeah, Which fun it. fact for the audience, in case people don't know, there are more countries in the world that know how to make nuclear weapons and nuclear reactors than yeah. fighter jet engines in the world. That that's a, a, a huge outcome, which you know I, I, I've forgotten to mention earlier. So, uh, as all of this happened, why it, it all of this has happened in parallel with a very deep people-to-people relationship. Uh, you, you walk into a restaurant in Delhi or Mumbai or you know Ahmedabad, and Take a random poll of of every table, and every table will have at least one person who has a cousin or a or, or a, a close relative living in America, working in America. This is a reality. This is a reality in almost all of India's big cities. Uh, so we we there is a a a genuine uh, empathy with America. There is a there is a there are personal relations. Somebody may have studied there. Somebody may have a business relationship there. Somebody may have traveled there. Uh, at the root of the India-US relationship is this is this very strong people-to-people bond, which which middle-class India feels and buys into, and which Twitter cannot interrupt. Now, coming to Twitter and coming to frankly modern political messaging, uh, whether in India or the US, this is you know I began my life as a journalist many many years ago. I gave up journalism about twenty years ago, full-time journalism, but I still. Uh, think a lot about political communication. I think you can never take out journalism out of a former journalist. <laughs> in a sense, yes, because it's a, it's a great profession uh, to teach you about life and to 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 teach you about many other professions. Uh, also, it's a profession that is very alive to deadlines. So it, it keeps you on your toes. Uh, you can't postpone stuff to the next day or the next year as bureaucracies do. You, you need to get it done by that deadline, by that evening. Uh, but... Uh, Communication, political communication today, or uh, and especially in our social media age, uh, has ceased to remain something you do to try and persuade the other person, to try and bring him or her closer to your point of view, to find some common ground. Okay, we disagree on ten issues. Maybe on these two issues, we agree together. Most political communication uh, on, say, social media has become virtue signaling, and it's become. You know, my virtue signaling is more virtuous than yours. And people are addressing their base, their constituency, looking for validation. Uh, with due respects to President Obama, a person I respect deeply, uh, his messaging on India, that interview with Christine Amman, was also addressing his constitu- constituency back home. A constituency which is skeptical about India, I agree, but he was addressing it. Uh, he made a very sweeping remark. He, I wish he had made a more specific remark that, look, these are the individual policies that worry me, or these are the issues and incidents that worry me. He, but he made a sweeping remark about 
the relationship between Hindus and Muslims in India, which I wondered whether a person of his maturity and experience should have. And then he spoke about India being potentially torn apart. I'm sure he didn't mean a territorial tearing apart. Uh, he meant more uh, society's fabric being torn apart. But people in India did see it as, as a signal that India may actually break up. And uh, again, I think President Obama should have been more sensitive to that because, you know, this is a country that, it, and this is a part of the world that has seen territorial challenges. Well, and uh, and I would add, if you may allow me, there's a history of Western press going back to 1947 onwards across the subcontinent, predicting the end of the nation states in the subcontinent. So there, is, there are greater sensitivities here. Uh, and it now, did it did it trigger a more than desirable backlash here? Uh, yes, it did. I I do wish some ministers and, and MPs had been a little more careful with their language while criticizing President Obama. But I guess they were also addressing their base. Uh, we we reached an unfortunate situation where political messaging is now guided by you know what your base feels about your particular messaging on social media. Uh, this is a trap uh, all politicians have fallen into, politicians in India, politicians in, in the US as well, in, and in this case, President Obama. Uh, and we have to live with it. Yeah, I, I think, again, I think as I agree with your fundamental point, right, that the broader relationship in terms of the governments is far, far beyond and ahead of the curve than most imagine. So, I think that's going to be the driving force regardless uh, of what happens in the near term. Um, switching gears, um, the prime minister comes to D.C., then he majorly goes to Egypt. And there's a lot of interesting stuff happening on the India-Middle East foreign policy side that, in my mind at least, a lot of people are not paying close attention to or appreciating the nuances. And I would love for you to sort of help the audience understand where you see that outreach going to, right? You've had deepening ties with the UAE, with Saudi Arabia, with Egypt, with Israel, with the Haifa port, there's I2U2, a lot of things happening, where again, I would love for you to help the audience understand the signals from the noise here in terms of what India's Middle East strategy is at this point in time. You know, uh, my former boss, Minister Jaishankar, often describes India's contemporary foreign policy as one of concentric circles. And what this government, Mr. Modi's government has done really is expanded the second concentric circle or really invested in the second concentric circle. The first concentric circle is our immediate neighborhood, South Asia or the Indian subcontinent, call it what you will. Well, just beyond that are the Gulf states, West Asia, as we call it. Uh, these are a part of our near neighborhood. It's, it's often joked in India that the uh, Dubai is uh, the most efficient and well-run Indian city. And Dubai airport is the most efficient and well-run uh, Indian airport. And people uh, from the subcontinent magically fall in line the moment they land in yeah, Dubai or Abu Dhabi airport. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, uh, things have changed, got a little complicated to our east. But frankly, Singapore uh, still has uh, a very important role to our east as well. So in a sense, Singapore is the most efficient Indian airport to our east. Uh, but com coming to... to to, to uh, uh, the Gulf in West Asia. India has a important, an important stake there. Uh, India has uh, a large and very diverse diaspora there, from uh, blue-collar workers to white-collar workers, uh, from uh, business people to 
to to people who do more humble jobs on the streets of Dubai or or Saudi Arabia. Uh, India also exports uh, a lot to these countries. Uh, food, for instance, uh, uh, the the UAE's food supply lines depend heavily on India, and India kept those food supply lines going even during the COVID lockdown, just as uh, the UAE looked after Indian workers, and you know, even when they didn't really have work and incomes in that lockdown period. So uh, both countries, both sets of countries really need each other. Also, uh, the, U the, the UAE and Saudi Arabia are reimagining the relationship with Israel. Uh, there is a lot of dynamism in that part of the world. Things are changing. Uh, as uh, the role of the U.S. contracts in that part of the world, for many reasons, say the U.S. is contracting its its uh, depend its uh, commitments to many parts of Asia, uh, including uh, West Asia and, and the Gulf region. Uh, partly, this is because uh, of pressures from uh, domestic society back home. Partly it's because the U.S. is no longer dependent on energy from that part of the world. India is still dependent on energy from that part of the world. Uh, India still sees that part of the world as part of its its, its neighborhood. It, it, and this has been there for a thousand years, many thousand years. It's not, not new. Uh, and uh, India has a, a diaspora that works there. India has economic ties with that part of the world. Investments from uh, sovereign wealth funds, in, in Saudi Arabia or in uh, the UAE coming into India, or whether it's Indian exports, pharmaceuticals, uh, now mobile phones, and as I said, uh, uh, food supplies to that part of the world. There's a there's a, a strengthening relationship. So the investment in a deeper strategic relationship with the Gulf states and with West Asia was long overdue. Uh, it would also have a security and maritime dimension because uh, India's maritime footprint is expanding. And uh, as the U.S. footprint declines or becomes smaller, uh, it will be filled by no one country can do it. No one country can replace the U.S. or whatever the U.S. is vacating. But India will be part of the mix. Uh, so, for all these reasons, uh, Prime Minister Modi and uh, his government have prioritized reimagining the relationship with countries in what we call the Middle East or West Asia or North Africa. And, uh, of course, Egypt is, in a sense, a new frontier in the past few years. Uh, so, that really is the reason why this relationship has been growing. Uh, I2U2 is a, is a part of this as well, because again, uh, as the Israelis start working with uh, their partners in, in the UAE or in, in other parts of uh, the Arab world, uh, both countries want to work with India because they both have good relations with India. And they see India as a, an honest broker. And there are also economic opportunities for all three partners here, and of course, in, in the case of I2U2, the U.S. is the fourth partner. Uh, there's there's a deep interest in in all of these countries, uh, including in Egypt, on what India has achieved with its digital public infrastructure. Uh, 
on how India has used uh, uh, digital technology as a force multiplier to uh, deliver public services to its people to to uh, in, enhance and accelerate its, its own developmental journey. So for a vast variety of reasons, uh, the, the relationship between India and, and broadly West Asia, North Africa, or the Middle East, as uh, you folks call it in Washington, uh, has got a significant boost in the past few years. Uh, I would argue it was it was waiting to happen. Uh, it's to the credit of Mr. Prime Minister Modi that he recognized the moment and seized it. What are some things that, you know, from your vantage point in, in Delhi, um, that you wish folks in Washington at least um, understood a bit better in terms of India's priorities, its strategic posture, and where it's trying to push the envelope in terms of its economic and foreign relations. Are there things that stand out to you that you're like, you know what, this is where folks in Washington perhaps need to understand things a bit better. I'm trying to understand what's the what's the gap here, if any at all, that you think needs to be filled in terms of how the two communities, Delhi and Washington, understand each other? You know, uh, to be honest with you, uh, I think folks in government generally get it. Now, uh, maybe that's true for the, the constellation of stars we have in Delhi and in uh, Washington, because both governments, both the Biden administration and the uh, the Modi government here in Delhi are blessed with unusually uh, sapient, I would say, and experienced foreign policy hands. Uh, India has not had a minister like Jai Shankar. Uh, the Jai Shankar Doval combination, uh, the, the the foreign policy team we have at the MEA, uh, the foreign the the enlightened and open thinking of the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Modi, in reimagining India's place in the world. This is a unique set of characteristics. I'm not suggesting other Prime Ministers previously have not thought of foreign policy. They have, and they've thought well of it. But th this cast of characters is very experienced and almost unique in, in, in their combination. Uh, in the US, too, the Biden administration has... Is fortunate that its its foreign policy team, both uh, in the NSCS and uh, in uh, in the NSC and in, in state, uh, and of course President Biden himself, uh, is again very very experienced, and it's actually a, a team that has recognized India's strategic value and really invested in it. So I don't really have a problem with folks in government. Uh, the commentariat, the think tank community, and the media could cut India some slack. Uh, there are various uh, sort of tactical and episodic issues on which uh, I wish they understood India better. But I won't bore you with, with small incidents here and there. I think there should be a broader recognizing of the value of geography. Just as... Uh, A century and more ago, almost two centuries ago, the U.S. conceived the Monroe Doctrine because it was concerned about its backyard and its geography, uh, South America, or, or actually even its west coast, uh, being uh, uh, colonized by, by European powers, including, in fact, Russia. Uh, just as geography matters to the U.S., geography matters to India also. That is why on 
say Myanmar, we will always take a different position from a country that is a thousand miles away. So New Delhi's position on, on Myanmar will always be more nuanced and careful than Stockholm's position on Myanmar. Stockholm is, does not have Myanmar as a neighbor. India does. And India has a, a very long uh, border with Myanmar. Uh, we have uh, more than one state that has an insurgency uh, that sometimes seeps into Myanmar. Uh, we have concerns about uh, ethnic and uh, religious conflict within Myanmar, uh, which, if it goes out of hand, uh, could could create a very problematic situation at our doorstep. Uh, this is not a problem which the blob in Washington is concerned with, because for them, Myanmar is a black and white issue. Uh, military junta versus whatever, non-military junta, democracy. Uh, we, we also value democracy, and we, we do want a democratically elected government in Myanmar. But life is more complicated than just that binary. Uh, the other uh, area where you know geography really matters to us uh, in a way that is not probably recognized in Washington is, uh, uh, frankly, what life looks like from the other side of this vast heartland called Eurasia. So what's happening in Ukraine is, is terrible. And Mr. Putin's invasion of, Russia, of Ukraine was is certainly not warranted and uh, nobody serious in government in India supports it. But the US and Europe's concerns are in the interaction with the Western world has with the, the Western end of Eurasia. Uh, India's concerns are the Eastern end of Eurasia, which is, you know, where Central Asia, China, Russia, Afghanistan, uh, and India and Pakistan all meet. And that is a very uh, troubling part of the world. That's a very troubled part of the world. That's a part of the world that has uh, a direct bearing on India's security, India's, uh, uh, in some cases, India's economy, uh, and India's stability. And that has been so for a long, long time. So, in a sense, geography defines your posture and your your grand strategy. I, uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, U.S. commentators get that in theory. They get that about their own country. They don't always get it about other countries. Yeah, no, that's well said. And I would just add to it that on top of geography, there's a general weakness in the United States for history and understanding the long arc of history in Eurasia and the subcontinent in particular, because the U.S. is a young country in the grand scheme of things. And therefore, they don't have the memory of the 5,000, 10,000 years of civilizational history in that part of the world and the complications and nuances that then tends to create um, you mentioned concentric circles, right? So we started with the U.S., came a bit closer to West Asia. I want to close this conversation with India-Pakistan, something you just mentioned as well. Um, we've had false starts, many, many false starts. Um, Nawaz Sharif on the Pakistani side, perhaps, is the only, I would say, politician to keep attempting peace and keep attempting uh, at some sort of rapprochement and then falling short on that. The last uh, attempt he made, 2014, 
uh, with Prime Minister Modi. He came, everybody knows about what happened after that. And then we saw, uh, and Imran Khan recently confirmed as well, that there was some opening uh, during his tenure. And he, as Commerce Minister, said yes to trade. And then as Prime Minister said no to trade, which I still don't understand the logic of that. But let's ignore that for a point. I would love your thoughts on where this relationship stands today and what the attitude in Delhi is in terms of, you know, at this point in time, figuring a way out to somehow, at least at a very base level, normalize relations with Pakistan. What's the Delhi perspective on Pakistan at this point? Uh, you know, when uh, when the Shabazz Sharif government was sworn in, uh, there was some hope that there would be a, some sort of a, a softening on trade from from. Pakistan's position and people wondered where it could lead to. That didn't quite happen. Uh, I think Imran as a politician proved much more resilient and much more popular than a lot of people including perhaps in Rawalpindi imagined. And uh, uh, the situation in Pakistan has become that much more unpredictable. Uh, so there's a, a political meltdown, there's an economic meltdown. Uh, and quite frankly, even if India wanted to talk, it doesn't know who to talk to right now. Uh, that is a reality. Perhaps the elections will give us greater clarity. But uh, I would, uh, again, step back from the immediate moment. And uh, since you spoke about trade, uh, there's something for you to, to consider for both. Both, our, both India and Pakistan to consider. You know, 1947 was a big rupture. It led to the creation of two different political entities and nation states. Now, frankly, that has happened earlier in history. It, it may happen again in history, in other geographies, other countries. You know, countries are formed, nation states are formed, nation states come together, they, they, they separate. This has been there throughout history in, in many parts of the world, from Africa, Europe, whatever. Uh, I would argue an even greater rupture that unfortunately took place and took place because perhaps people didn't understand the value of economics and trade was that uh, the world's largest free trade zone in an, in, an, in an era before we understood what a free trade zone was and before we used words like or terms like FTA, uh, a, a free trade zone going back millennia, uh, which, which brought goods and travelers and traders from you know central asia through afghanistan through what is today pakistan to what is today india uh, down to, to to either bengal or, or and myanmar or to uh, the indian ocean uh, that got interrupted now uh, in a sense pakistan locked itself out of the rest of the subcontinent and hasn't quite found its way to a, a new uh, trade hinterland or a new geography uh, because the, that is the fundamental problem that Pakistan is grappling with because you know trade with Iran through, through the deserts of Balochistan is not quite the same thing as trade uh, from one Punjab to the other and into the rest of India there uh, and of, of course CPEC is one attempt to, to realign Pakistan's trade routes. Uh, it's decidedly a, a work in progress and let's see where that goes. In the case of India, 
with India's much larger geography, with India's access to to uh, its peninsula, with India's access to its east and and uh, countries to its east, uh, India reimagined its trade map. And then, of course, technology has helped it trade beyond South Asia, beyond the subcontinent. With with as I said, with with ASEAN, with uh, uh, with West Asia and with America. Uh, when a young Indian today thinks of Pakistan, uh, he thinks of it in the context of a cricket match. He may think of it in the context of uh, some violent incident, a terror incident, or something of that nature. Uh, but he doesn't think of it as a place he would want to travel to because travel doesn't happen. He doesn't think of it a place where he may want to go and study because that doesn't happen. He he will not think of it a place where he may want to go and work or uh, you know sell some goods or sell his services because that doesn't happen. We're not part of the same trading system. Now, when the young person in India uh, thinks uh, thinks of Dubai or thinks of Singapore or thinks of you know whatever Seattle or or the Netherlands or the UK, one of many of these motivate one or many of these motivations come into play. He or she thinks of studying there or going there to work or or thinks of that particular city or country as a location where Indians either export something or from where they import something. Uh, with Pakistan, none of those very normal everyday trade linkages come into play. And uh, this is leading to a uh, a rupture of a far deeper kind. It's not. It's not hostility, because you know when you don't, when you don't know something, you can't either like it or hate it. You just simply don't know about it. It's it's leading to the a rupture, not of hostility, but of ignorance. And uh, unless we fix those trade linkages, quite frankly, and I guess. Uh, this is a question to be posed to to governments in Islamabad more than governments in New Delhi, because governments in New Delhi have tried. To be honest, uh, unless we fix this, uh, this this almost passive rupture uh, will just keep growing. Do you see, like, if I were to then ask you, let's say, you know, elections in Pakistan are coming up, we kind of know what the makeup of this will be given everything that's happened to the PTI, uh, and, you know, by hook or by crook. And then there's an electoral cycle in India in 24. If I were to say, okay, if there's an opening on either side, on the on the Delhi side in terms of the prime minister looking at reimagining foreign policy and sort of saying, look, there is some opening here. The World Cup you mentioned is also coming up, which, by the way, a lot of people would want to travel to India for. And then on the Pakistani side, there's a government that, you know, historically, at least on the People's Party and Nawaz League side, has also been committed to peace and has been undermined in many ways. What would it take to create that opening, if I were to ask you, as sort of your foreign, where your foreign policy had across on both sides? And what would you like to see happen that would tell you, okay, you know what, maybe there's a slight opening once more that, you know, we can push through and, and sort of get something done? I don't have an answer, to be honest with you, because a lot of it would depend on the issues and themes that come up in the election in Pakistan. To what degree is the election about economic rebuilding? 
to what degree is the election about identity uh, politics and you know uh, an issue such as india or kashmir or, and so on uh, it it quite it depends on that to be honest with you if uh, there is a genuine conversation with pakistani politicians are willing to have with the people of pakistan about focusing on the economy and you know focusing on uh, you know like what is the big debate that people in the uk are not having their politicians are not telling them that brexit was a stupid idea because you can't not trade with your immediate neighbor and think of trade deals with you know countries which are thousands of miles away while not trading with the immediate neighbor uh in a sense that's the conversation with pakistani politicians have to have with the people of pakistan it's just the same thing yeah no i i couldn't agree more and in fact my my fun fact when i go to islamabad is to pull up the google satellite map and basically draw the geography of the region and say well or you pull up the night lights from nasa and say well this is the trade corridor right here it's lit up at the at night and if you're ignoring that and if you think you can somehow magically trade into central asia um or into the you know xinjiang region or into iran um then a history doesn't support that idea and geography most certainly does not and there's a reason why history is important and the region has always trade you you mentioned the rupture right i mean my own grandfather used to trade from gujarat all the way to chittagong um and then it was karachi to chittagong and then it just was karachi at the end of the day towards the end of his life so i saw this play out in my own lifetime in terms of his stories and how he could trade and what you know flowed through this subcontinent um and and i i agree i think if trade happens then those linkages begin there's constituencies for peace and normalization and we build that forward but unfortunately that's not the case right now and you're right there's a generational shift happening so uh, i think maybe the old hats on either side of the border will try to rescue that situation and birth a new generation uh, of peace next in the region um but on that note ashok um thank you so much for taking out the time for this was fascinating conversation and always learn a lot from you and thank you for coming on the podcast and and we'll be in touch soon as well thank you azair this has gone extremely well i've enjoyed doing this i i hope you had as much fun as i did thanks for having me thank you bye bye